Welcome to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. For episode three, we'll break it up into two parts. This week, our focus is dedicated to laying the groundwork in order to fully understand the basic event timeline for the Boston Marathon bombing, as well as the statewide manhunt that ensued the following four days. Gustav Gilbert was known for his writings during the Nuremberg trials, where as an American psychologist fluent in German, he conducted interviews with the highest-ranking Nazi leadership, having them author essays about themselves as well as taking notes of exactly what was said during every conversation he had with the prisoners. The outcome was a collection of those prisoner accounts titled The Nuremberg Diary, originally published in 1947, but was later reprinted in full in 1961. Gilbert had a conversation with Hermann Göring, who was one of the most powerful figures in the Nazi party, which led to the following exchange, since made very famous. Boring. Quote. Why, of course, the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece? Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along. Whether it is a democracy, or a fascist dictatorship, or a parliament, or a communist dictatorship. Gilbert responds, There is one difference. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives. And in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Goring. Oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. End quote. It's important for us to understand the concepts of fourth and fifth generation warfare as we continue our gradual tiptoe toward totalitarianism. Fourth generation warfare, as presented by William S. Lind, is characterized by a postmodern return to decentralized forms of warfare, blurring of the lines between war and politics, combatants and civilians due to the state's loss of their near monopoly on combat forces. Returning to modes of conflict common in pre-modern times, guerrilla groups, private military contractors, and paramilitary organizations play a prominent role in fourth-generation warfare. Fifth-generation warfare is conducted primarily through non-kinetic military action, such as social engineering, misinformation, and cyber attacks, along with emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and fully autonomous systems. Fifth-generation warfare has been described by Daniel Abbott as a war of information and perception. What is a false flag operation? 
a manufactured crisis. A good example most are aware of by now would be the Gulf of Tonkin incident to provide a false pretext for war in Vietnam, or Operation Northwoods in 1962, when the Department of Defense approached President John Kennedy with proposals calling for operatives from the CIA to stage and commit violent terrorist acts against American military and civilian targets, paired with falsified evidence in order to frame the Cuban government. Asymmetric warfare includes the use of disaster training simulations, mass casualty simulations, private mercenary contractors, as well as companies like Vision Box, Denver, Colorado's leading professional actor studio, who promote themselves as crisis actors who are, quote, trained in criminal and victim behavior and bring intense realism to simulated mass casualty incidents in public places. Even companies like Amputees in Action, who reportedly in July 2012 had won a contract from the UK Ministry of Defense to help provide realism to military training using amputee crisis actors, including film-grade makeup specialists. Today we find ourselves once again on the yellow brick road hoping to catch another glimpse at the proverbial man behind the curtain. Our starting point is the finish line of the Boston Marathon, April 15, 2013, 2.49 p.m., according to the official narrative. An explosion in front of Marathon Sports on Boylston Street near the finish line. Another explosion a block away in front of the Forum Restaurant around 13 seconds later. 282 people injured, 14 people required amputations as a direct result of the blast, and three reported dead. 4.28 p.m. According to the New York Post, a 20-year-old Saudi Arabian national is a suspect in the bombings and in custody. 5.30. NBC News reports the Boston Police Department is guarding a man in a hospital who is a possible suspect. April 16th. Jeff Bauman, who lost both of his legs and was supposedly right next to the backpack when a pressure cooker inside of the backpack with explosives nails, and other shrapnel was detonated remotely, gave a description of the alleged perpetrator to the FBI. April 17th, CNN makes false reports of an arrest made. The FBI and Boston Police Department are forced to make an official statement denying said report. April 18th, the New York Post runs a front-page photo and wrongly incriminates two random men from Morocco who happened to be at the bombing that day with backpacks on. 5 p.m., April 18th, photos of the actual suspects were released by the FBI, urging the public to help identify the perpetrators. Two brothers, suspect one, 26-year-old Tamerlane Sarnayev, an aspiring heavyweight boxer. Suspect two, 19-year-old Zahar Sarnayev, student at University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, attending on scholarship awarded to him by the city of Cambridge. 10.33 p.m. April 18th. MIT police officer Sean Collier is found dead in his cruiser, allegedly shot by the Sarnayev brothers in a failed attempt to steal his firearm. April 19th, 12.15 a.m. A man by the name of Danny Mang ran into a mobile gas station screaming at the clerk to call 911. 
Danny reported pulling over to answer a friend's text message when he saw an old sedan pull up behind his black Mercedes SUV. Then he hears a knock on the window. The older brother jumped into my car and put a gun to me and told me they did the marathon bombing and just killed a policeman in Cambridge. According to Danny, the brothers needed gas, so they went to a shell station. When the younger brother, Zahar, went in to pay cash, according to Danny, he goes through the escape plan in his head. Unbuckle the seatbelt, open the door, and jump out. I never run that fast in my life. At 12.41 a.m., the police were already able to track the black Mercedes to Waterton. Danny, the carjacking victim, had happened to remember the login and tracking information for the GPS system in his stolen Mercedes, which enabled the police to pinpoint the location of the two brothers. A gunfight broke out with police in which the older brother was shot several times, tackled by the police, and then according to official accounts, police say that Zahar escaped by driving the stolen SUV toward the officers who were arresting his brother. Although the officers managed to avoid being hit, Zahar drove over Tamerlane, dragging him under the SUV about 30 feet. Although local eyewitness accounts like Linda, who lived on Dexter Street in Waterton, where the shooting took place, called in to WEEI 93.7 FM in Boston, and she described in detail how she saw the first suspect, Tamerlane, get ran over by a police SUV before getting shot multiple times in the middle of the street. Simultaneously, a video surfaced from just after 1 a.m. of a naked man being detained by the police during the search in the streets of Waterton. Tamerlane's own mother and closest friends to this day identified Tamerlane being taken into custody alive as the naked man from Waterton, only to be pronounced dead upon arrival at the Beth Israel Medical Center early Friday. 6.33 a.m. Boston, Waterton, and other communities issue a shelter-in-place advisory telling residents to stay in their homes. All mass transit completely halted while the FBI and thousands of police execute door-to-door searches. By 6.05 p.m., a shelter-in-place order was lifted. A Waterton man goes into his backyard between 6 and 7 p.m. His boat cover is loose. He proceeds to lift the cover and notices a blood trail and a body and immediately reports it to the authorities. By 7.30 p.m., SWAT teams and many other law enforcement personnel surround the boat and open fire. Witnesses hear loud noises considered to be flashbang grenades. By 8.30 p.m., the second suspect, 19-year-old Zahar Sarnayev, was taken into custody seriously wounded and also rushed to Beth Israel Medical Center before being charged officially on April 22nd with multiple crimes including using and conspiring to use a weapon of mass destruction resulting in death. The parents, family, and friends of the Sarnaya brothers still maintain their innocence to this very day, going as far as to say the boys were both set up, as well as being closely monitored by the FBI. In a series of Channel 4 News interviews, a British public broadcasting service, who were one of the only prominent media organizations willing to allow coverage of the family, Zubedet Sarnaeva, mother of the two brothers, claimed she knew the FBI was monitoring them because they had visited her home at least two or three times leading up to the bombing and had also been in touch with Tamerlane over the phone. 
the father Anzor Tsarnaev, also said, quote, A year and a half ago, around 2011, they came to our home, two young people from Boston. They said they wanted to talk to my son. They came in. We sat down in the kitchen, them and us. They said, We're doing preventative work. We check out all the young people, they said. How they live, what they do, what intentions are for the future. They also said that here in Boston, we don't want our children to be blown up in the streets. That's their words. We want our children to be safe, they said. Enzor continued to repeat the claim that Tamerlane had called his mother a few days after the event and told her that a U.S. security agent had called him and said he was suspected of carrying out the bombing. Watching the statements of the family immediately flooded my mind with doubts of the official narrative. I probed deeper into the history of the family, where they were originally from, when they migrated, and then I stumbled onto Uncle Ruslan Tsarnaev, the only member of the family who did not defend the boys in any way, yet surprisingly received the most media attention directly after the event. During the ongoing manhunt for the younger brother, he was in his home being interviewed by the FBI when media arrived outside, and he says directly to the camera, Zahar, if you're alive, turn yourself in and ask for forgiveness, as well as claiming, of course we're ashamed, they're children of my brother. Further investigation into Uncle Ruslan led me down a very strange, unexpected path. According to an article written by William Engdahl for the Voltaire Network in Frankfurt, Germany, May 20th, 2013, Ruslan Sarnayev, who changed his name to Ruslan Sarny, lives in a posh Washington, D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland. He has worked in the past for companies tied to Dick Cheney's Halliburton, as well as a consultant in Kazakhstan with the State Department's USAID, which has been identified and confirmed as a CIA front operation. Take it all in. The two brothers, Tamerlane and Zahar Sarnayev, accused of being responsible for the Boston Marathon bombings, had an uncle, the same uncle who agreed to bury the remains of the one dead brother. This uncle was married to the daughter of Graham Fuller, also known as the Godfather of Al-Qaeda, one of the most important CIA architects of using Islamic jihadist terrorists against the USSR during and after the Cold War, all throughout Central Asia, including Chechnya and Kazakhstan. Coincidence? In April 2002, Sarnayev's parents and younger brother Zahar went to the U.S. on a 90-day tourist visa, afterward applying for asylum. During this time, Tamerlane was left in the care of Uncle Ruslan in Kyrgyzstan and arrived in the U.S. around two years later. Before we make the transition back to the events that unfolded at the finish line, we owe it to ourselves to tie off one more loose end. Ibrahim Tarashev was a former amateur boxer and friend of Boston Marathon bomber Tamerlane Tsarnaev. Shortly after the bombings took place, May 22, 2013, he was interviewed for over five hours at his apartment in Orlando, Florida, by two Massachusetts state troopers, one member of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and one FBI agent named Aaron McFarlane. 
According to law enforcement, he was a person of interest in a triple homicide that took place in Waltham, Massachusetts on September 11, 2011, and was in the middle of implicating himself and Tamerlane in a written confession regarding the murders in the final hours of the private interrogation when he supposedly knocked over a table and then attacked one of the state troopers with a pole. He was shot three times and then staggered backward before attempting to attack them again with the same metal pole and was subsequently shot four more times including a direct shot point blank to the back of the head. The police changed their story multiple times from Tarashev originally swinging the metal pole to him swinging a sword. They then changed it from a sword to a broomstick until finally changing the weapon one last time from a broomstick to a knife. According to latest reports, the two state troopers had left the room a short time before the killing took place. The official story is that FBI agent Aaron McFarlane was the one who shot Tadashev all seven times and had earned quite the reputation by this time, already being accused of falsifying police reports, lying under oath, aggravated battery, making false arrests, violating the rights of suspects, assault with a weapon, and false imprisonment, while also being the subject of four internal investigations and two brutality lawsuits. A federal judge dismissed wrongful death claims filed by the parents against the FBI and two Massachusetts state troopers. When I read the complete account of Ibrahim Tarashev and his father, Abdulbaki Tarashev, I immediately knew this was at the very least a failed attempt at a forced confession turned into an execution. In part two, next week's episode, we'll be finishing our investigation back where we started, at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Dedicating the entire episode to covering official eyewitness and victim accounts as well as delving into detailed speculation of allegations of false flags, fake blood, amputee crisis actors, private mercenary contractors, bomb spotters on rooftops, mismatching backpacks, and manufactured photo opportunities. We should end our episode remembering Zahar Sarnayev, convicted of 30 counts on April 8, 2015, and sentenced to death on June 24, 2015. His death sentence was vacated on appeal in July 2020, but the U.S. Supreme Court reversed this decision in March 2022. We end in his own words from a tweet he posted at 5.04 p.m., two hours after the bombing of the marathon. Quote, Ain't no love in the heart of the city. Stay safe, people.